to bully. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown. Hello and welcome to Monopolies Killed My Hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron, and in this podcast, I'm exploring how our decision to change our competition laws in the 1980s has led to the rise of monopolies and corporate power, and consequently, the decline of small towns and small businesses. I'll share my experiences growing up and then moving back to Amherst, Nova Scotia, where I currently run my own business and live with my family. So I'm looking back at our Canadian anti-monopoly history to find the solutions we used the last time we fought back against monopolies, because ultimately I want our small towns, small businesses, and people to have more control and agency over their own lives. When we are governed by corporations headquartered elsewhere, we can lose control and lose hope. So I also write a newsletter. I've moved it all over to our new website, mkht.ca. You can find the newsletters, you can sign up for the newsletter, and you can also find all the old podcast episodes there. As well, I'm a co-founder of the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. You can find us online at antimonopoly.ca. So check out both of those. Today, I'm still working through the Royal Commission on Price Spreads report from 1934. Specifically, this is part two of my deep dive into chapter seven on distribution. Episode 11 was an introduction to the whole report, and I talked about why the Parliament struck this committee and how the committee went out and investigated the whole Canadian economy. And then episode 12 was an introduction to the distribution system or the retail industry in Canada, and then the impact of mass buyers on small businesses in the Canadian economy. Today, episode 13, this is part two, we're going to look at and talk about department stores. And I think Canadians have a very interesting history with department stores, right? Because at the time of this report, so 1934, Eaton's was the largest department store in the country, doing about 7% of all Canadian retail sales. So that's one, but even more so, we have another long, complex, and involved history with the Hudson's Bay Company. The Bay is mostly known as like the retail shops now, but that's not where they started, right? So the Hudson's Bay Company was formed in 1670 by the English government, basically had a fur trading monopoly for the 17th century over an area known as Rupert's Land. So this is basically Northern Quebec through Northern Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, about half of Alberta and the part of the Northwest Territories around Hudson's Bay. So this was a big area. And so they had the fur trading monopoly with First Nations people. And in the 18th century, what they found was Hudson's Bay was only really establishing posts on the main rivers and main arteries. They didn't venture inland at all with their trading posts or traders or anybody. And so this basically forced the indigenous people, the First Nations people, to travel to the forts and posts in order to trade with Hudson's Bay Company. So I look back and I go, well, okay, so Hudson's Bay was the biggest fur trader and they weren't providing great service to their trading partners. So Hudson's Bay's competitors moved inland and traded directly with the First Nations people. Unsurprisingly, this increased competition and more choices for First Nations people to get an increased and better return for their furs, which is basically increased competition. Having more potential buyers increases the price available for the producers. In 1763, the British took over from Hudson's Bay's French competitors after the British and the French signed a treaty. 
1774, Hudson's Bay was losing enough business because of this increased competition. They were forced to move inland and trade directly with First Nations people. So again, I look at it and go, okay, you know, increased competition can force incumbents to offer better service. Now, quick note, I am not downplaying the impact Hudson's Bay Company had on the First Nations people. I mean, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company really were instrumental in colonization of Canada and then the subsequent and awful treatment of First Nations people. Not downplaying that or ignoring that at all. As Hudson's Bay's future unraveled, they also ran into a whole lot of increased competition with the Northwest Company, who basically had the monopoly on fur trading in British Columbia and what is now Yukon and part of the Northwest Territories. And so this competition was intense, one for price, but it also led to something that was eventually called the Pemmican Wars. And so Pemmican is the First Nations food. It's the First Nations staple, and it was instrumental for the fur trade. The Pemmican War did end in a final battle in June 1816, when 60 First Nations and Métis people who were traveling to deliver Pemmican to the Northwest Company brigades were attacked by 28 Hudson Bay Company officers' employees. So think about this though, right? Their employees were sent out to battle, like to fight their competitions, literally fight their competition. So this battle left 21 of the Hudson's Bay Company side dead and two on the Northwest Company dead. I bring this up as a reminder that monopolies just don't cause economic harms or economic problems. They can cause political and real harms. So the solution that the British Parliament had to deal with the war between these two companies was they forced them to merge. Or better yet, Hudson's Bay acquired the Northwest Company. And then you'll never guess what happened from there when there was a merger between the two biggest companies. To gain efficiencies from this merger, Hudson's Bay Company closed down a lot of the trading posts that were unprofitable and left behind the First Nations people who relied on that post. And I assume that the English people who worked in those communities had to pack up and leave as well. Back to Hudson's Bay, you know, over the next hundred years, they were involved in fur trade, real estate, natural resource extraction, and actual governance of certain colonies, like Vancouver Island. In 1913, Hudson Bay started to focus on retail, and they built their original, as they called them, the six stores between 1913 and 1926. So those were stores in Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Victoria, Winnipeg, and Saskatoon. This more or less brings us up to where the price spreads report picks things up. And so why did I do this long deep dive into the history of the Hudson's Bay Company? Well, one, there is an argument to be made that Canada was built by a monopoly. And some American writers argue that the Boston Tea Party and the American Revolution was basically an anti-monopoly rebellion against the British Tea Company that was extracting prices and they were revolting against the monopoly. So eh, it's just, it's an interesting kind of frame. But also I want to point out the issues with monopolies go way back. This isn't a new thing, and the same issues keep repeating themselves. High prices, poor service, violence, unless there are other powerful countervailing forces, like organized labor or governments. So, Hudson's Bay Company's done building their original six stores, price spreads report started. At this time, 1934, the two other biggest department stores in Canada were the Timothy Eaton Company, or Eaton's, and the Robert Simpson Company. I don't remember the Robert Simpson Company, but I do remember Eaton's. I think they went bankrupt in 97, 98, or 99, the late 90s. I mean, the Eaton Centre on Young Street is still named after them. The commission identifies that the Bay, Eaton's, and Robert Simpson were the majority of the multiple branch department stores in Canada, and that the Bay and Eaton's did the majority of mail order business in the country. 
The commission found at this time there were 146 department stores, including mail order warehouses across the country. So 61 were in Ontario, 24 in BC in the Prairie Provinces, 17 in Quebec, and 20 in the Maritimes. So I was trying to figure out, okay, what were the 20 department stores in the Maritimes? What would they have been? You know, I know there was two Barkers in Amherst, and I assume there was Eaton's, Robert Simpson, The Bay in Halifax and Dartmouth. Was Googling and saw something about the Royal Store in Yarmouth. I'm just kind of curious what the other ones would have been. So if you know any of them, find me on Twitter, send me an email, let me know if you can think of any other independent department stores operating at this time. Looking back on it, the commission found they had to look at a department store as a separate entity because department stores compete against all other retailers across so many different lines, right? So housewares, food, clothing, now there's insurance, there's all sorts of stuff. And so it was hard for the commission to separate out the sales of housewares in all the department stores to compare them against other independent houseware retailers. And so when they looked at all the retail industry, they found that department chain stores did 31% of all retail sales, Eaton's doing about 7% of all sales. And so one of the things I find fascinating is at the same time in the U.S., the American Congress was afraid of the dominance of the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, the A&P, which didn't have as dominant a position in the U.S. retail industry as Eaton's did in Canada. Side note, the first time I ever actually heard of the company, the AMP, was the short story AMP in grade 10. I kind of want to go back and read it again to see what it was all about. I mean, the reality is it can't be as shocking or disturbing as the lottery was. Anyways, so because of the fear of the AMP, the U.S. Congress passed and implemented the Robinson-Patman Act. And so this was to ensure that small businesses could compete with larger businesses. So the Institute of Local Self-Reliance, Stacy Mitchell, who was one of the guest speakers at our launch event for camp, and Ron Knox just wrote a report about the importance of the Robinson-Patman Act. They got into how it protected small retailers and small suppliers from predatory buying. Predatory pricing is when a large company is selling something below cost, basically drive out their competitors. Predatory buying is when a business or a company has so much power, they're able to force price concessions or better terms or other things like advertising discounts from their suppliers that then only end up available to them and not to their competitors. So under the RPA, the Robinson-Patman Act, the same price needed to be offered to all similar purchasers. So if Walmart forced price concession or better terms from Levi's, then Levi's has to give the same to all the retailers. There's more nuance to it, but that's the gist of it. So check out the link to the ISLR report. It's going to come up again. So we have to start with the fact that for Eaton's to reach 7% of retail sales in the country, they were obviously doing something right. The commission found that the department stores had improved merchandising and they maintained a focus on low prices with a single policy for pricing across all of their stores. And so this focus created a confidence in the public that department stores were providing a benefit to them. And so this confidence and reputation becomes very important in the next stage of growth for the department stores. The commission found there were four key steps that department stores took when they were looking to expand. The first one was departmentalization. All the companies, Eaton's, Bay, Robert Simpson started as dry goods stores. And then when they created different departments, that let them transition from the dry goods stores into the department stores that we know them as now. Second was creating the mail order business. And this let these stores increase their volume. And it also allowed them to open smaller mail order stores in cities across the country. 
And so I remember just in the last 10 years, Sears in Canada still had these, where you could order something from the Sears catalog, or in this case, at this point, Sears online, and it could get shipped for free to that local pickup station. There was a dry cleaner in town in Amherst here that was the local Sears pickup point. These mail order stores allowed the department stores to create smaller retail stores throughout the country or in different parts of the bigger cities. And this, to me, also sounds like what Amazon's talking about doing with them opening up their own physical retail stores. To me, there's very few new ideas in retail. Everything's like an updated version of something that was done before. The third thing that department stores did at this point was adding new product lines, especially groceries and food stuff. The addition of food is key. Food keeps customers coming back in regularly to get more milk or bread or the staples. And then this way, you can build up a good relationship with them, provide them good service. You can also have the, oh, while you're here, did you know about our sales on sheets? Once they're in there, you have more opportunity to make a sale, gain a customer. The last thing that the commission found the department stores were doing was starting to manufacture for their own stores and create private label goods. So they had factories manufacturing for the mail order business, which then they grew into manufacturing for the whole fleet of stores. And so for me, like I read these steps and I went, this is great. This is fascinating because I think these are very similar steps to what Amazon's done over the last 30 years to dominate retail. Amazon started in the 90s and they started out selling books at a competitive price. My take on that is that when they started out, they honed their service and delivery methods and built a reputation with the public for quality and service that carried over as they expanded, similar to what the department stores did. In Amazon's case, though, choosing to set up the business in Washington state so they didn't have to charge anyone's sales tax across the whole country created an unfair pricing advantage that local stores didn't have. I mean, the reality is like Amazon should not have been able to do that, to set up in one state so that they didn't have to charge sales tax to anybody else. Because like in my mind, and I've said before, that online shopping and e-commerce is just the newest version of mail order. I go online and I order something and they ship it to me. That's the same, you know, instead I go do it online instead of calling or sending in an order form. But the thing is like any mail order form I ever remember seeing always had down at the bottom at 8% sales tax if you're in Ontario, 7% in Alberta, 15 in Nova Scotia, whatever they were. So you had to do that depending on where you were based out of and where you lived. Currently, HST in Nova Scotia is 15%. So if you have a local company that's selling physical products to somebody in store and they have to charge 15%, and then you have Amazon that for no real reason other than we just haven't enforced these laws is able to set up in another province and all of a sudden gets a 15% price advantage on them. That's unfair to the small business. And Amazon didn't gain that by being more efficient or better they gained it because they were able to set up somewhere else. After selling books for a while, Amazon started creating new departments, offering new lines. They eventually purchased Whole Foods, which lines up with all the department stores wanting to offer groceries and food stuff. And ultimately, Amazon created Amazon Basics and started to manufacture their own products to then undercut other smaller retailers. And so like the department stores, coasting on or use the reputation of low prices and benefit to consumers to grow their business. I, I really think Amazon has done the same thing. And the reason I say that is there's been a number of different antitrust lawsuits filed against Amazon, accusing them of keeping retail prices across all online shopping artificially high. 
while we still think we're getting fantastic and best and greatest prices from Amazon. So this is my understanding of how the process works. We need to start with Amazon Prime, right? Which is a subscription service that gets you TV and movies for free, streaming music for free, and two-day free shipping for as many products as you want. And it costs you, I don't know, 10 or 12 bucks a month. So some of the recent stats I found are there's 153 million Amazon Prime members in the U.S., and 55% of Canadian shoppers use Amazon Prime. So if you're a retailer selling online, you know, you need access to the Amazon Prime members, or you've just reduced your target market by about 50%, if not more. You also need and want to be one of the first results when somebody searches for a product on the Amazon page. I mean, I think even anecdotally, we can all think about how often do we actually scroll to like page five when we're looking for like a product on Amazon or even Google or anything like that, right? You want to be at the top of all the results. And so the suits are alleging that Amazon requires sellers who want access to the Amazon Prime searches and the Amazon Prime customers and want to be high on their search results to use the Fulfillment by Amazon service, also known as FBA. And so FBA is an excellent service, right? Because Amazon will warehouse your inventory and they'll ship it directly to the consumer and handle the payments, handling returns, customer service, all that sort of stuff. And for a retailer selling online, not having to handle inventory or shipping is definitely worth something. Amazon is charging or can charge, you know, 35 to 40% commission on all the retail sales to handle for the FBA service. This isn't a bad deal if this is what you choose to do or how you want to set up your business. But when you stop and think about it, like the free shipping, streaming and movies and free music costs more than 10 to $12 a month to deliver. So Amazon is losing money on Prime membership. And Amazon isn't offering that out of the goodness of their heart. That's not what they're doing. They're looking to, as a company, make money. So my understanding is the actual costs of the free shipping and actual costs of the streaming and the music are borne by the retailers as part of that 40% FBA fee. So us as consumers and purchasers may not pay it separately, but we are paying for this as part of the fees retailers pay. But the thing is, Amazon also has a stipulation in their contract with their retailers that a retailer will not sell for cheaper anywhere else online than on Amazon. So you can't sell cheaper on your own website or at a different marketplace or eBay or wherever, anything like that. This is so that Amazon can maintain that they have the lowest and the best prices. Okay, so how does this play out in real life and how does it impact, for example, Amherst? So let's say I'm a retailer in Amherst that sells t-shirts. Doesn't really matter what. And I want to sell on Amazon and I want to sell my own website. I sell the t-shirt on Amazon, say for a hundred bucks and it costs me 40%, $40 for the FBA service. That's great. Like I don't have as much stuff I got to deal with. It's just all done that way. Well, let's say on my own website, I want to figure out how to reduce my shipping and handling and customer service costs. And I realize that I can do it for $30 per shirt. So in theory, I could pass that $10 savings on to customers and reduce the price of the t-shirts on my website from $100 to $90, right? And which could make me more competitive in the market, uh, more attractive, and maybe increase sales, all sorts of benefits to that. But I can't. Well, I can. But if I do, then I lose access to the Amazon Prime customers and sales from Amazon. So because with my other agreement, I can't sell for less on Amazon than anywhere else. So if I want to maintain contact and maintain the Amazon customers, I either increase my price on my site or reduce the Amazon price, but I don't get to save the $10. So basically I'm stuck charging the $100 across the board. So there is an argument to be made that Amazon is forcing all purchasers of goods across all e-commerce sites to pay for the cost of Amazon Prime. 
And whereas if we didn't all have to bear the cost of Amazon Prime, prices could actually be cheaper for us shopping online. So that's the lawsuit. It'll be interesting to see how those arguments, how those play out in court. But enough about Amazon. I want to get back to the department stores and the price spreads report. So the department stores were set up so that each department had a manager that was responsible for the profitability of their department in their store. So the profitability of the department and ultimately the manager's performance and pay and job security depends on the gross margin they can make, basically the wage expenses, and then the load that is assigned by the head office. So gross margin is basically the profit you make from the sale of goods. So the t-shirts from above, they're $100 and they cost me $75 to make. My gross margin is $25 or 25%. Because... Typically, retailers will look at percentages, so it's easier to compare products across the board. So if you want to increase your gross margin percentage, you either have to increase the price you sell the product for or decrease the cost that you buy the product for. If that shirt cost me $75, but now I can buy it for $70, sell for $100, my gross margin is $30 or 30%. I'm making more money. The ideal or the key is if you can do both, increase the sale price and reduce your cost. Wage expense is strictly number of employees and cost salaries. Load is an interesting concept. In this case, load is the department's share of overhead, so of the cost of running the store in the organization. For example, heating of the building, property taxes, insurance, accounting costs, interest on products and loans, head office staff, etc. When I was reading this, you could actually go back and think that 40% commission charged by Amazon for the FBA service could be viewed as similar to this load concept. In the 1930s, the commission found the department stores were doing two things with the loads they were charging to each department. First thing they were doing is they were charging the departments more than the actual load cost. Basically, they marked up their overhead costs when assigning it to the departments. In this situation, it may not look like the department is actually making money, but there's already profit built in, so it could look like the department's not making a lot of money, but the whole organization is still making significant money. And then second, the department store kept increasing the loads assigned to the departments while requiring department managers to meet the same profit targets and same profit budgets. And so what the commission found is this created incentives and pressure on the individual department managers, one, to squeeze their suppliers to get a better price, and then to also increase prices when possible. So if we go back to the original one, Eaton's is doing 7% of the retail sales across the country. That gives them immense power. If Eaton's calls up, I'm going to use Stanfield's underwear in Truro, for example, and wants something from them, Stanfield's probably has to give in and go with it or else lose the customers that Eaton's has, which is similar to, again, what we were talking about before with Amazon and fulfillment by Amazon. We end up with this big power imbalance when retailers reach the size that they are, that they can then pressure and force suppliers to reduce their costs. The commission found that department stores were using their buying power to demand products and price concessions from suppliers, right? And one of the things they found they were doing is they were going to idle manufacturing plants, more or less demanding or getting the manufacturing plant to produce runs and produce products at below the manufacturing costs. But smaller retailers didn't have access to that low priced materials as well. And so the ability for the department stores to extract price concessions and lower prices is how the commission determined that, quote, Indeed, the principal reason for the maintenance of the dominating position of these companies during the Depression lies not in the limited economies which were possible, although these were drastically instituted, but in their ability to increase their trading margin in the face of falling prices. 
So in this case, trading margin is the same as gross margin. So the commission is saying that the dominant retailers in Canada, basically Eaton's, Robert Simpson, the Hudson's Bay, were able to maintain their dominant possession because they could demand price concessions from smaller suppliers and manufacturers. That was their conclusion. And so at the same time, like I said before, the U.S. Congress was afraid of the dominance of A&P and Kroger chain grocery stores. So they created the Robinson-Patman Act to prevent predatory buying, or also known as monopsony power. The Price Spreads Commission suggested the Canadian Parliament create a Federal Trade and Industry Commission, and then also amend the Combines Investigation Act to deal with predatory buying. The thing is, I don't believe we ever created the Federal Trade and Industry Commission, but I am interested to learn more about where we went with this idea. So, and again, I mentioned this report that just came out, boxed out by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. So in this report, Stacey Mitchell and Ron Knox conclude that basically the Robinson-Patman Act and the enforcement of it worked. So the strong enforcement of the RPA created, quote, a vibrant retail sector in which local businesses thrived alongside national chains. The law also supported a diversified manufacturing sector, by ensuring that small and mid-sized producers had many potential buyers for their products and were not at the mercy of a few big retailers, end quote. So then in the 1970s, U.S. antitrust enforcers stopped enforcing the Robinson-Patman Act and the practice of predatory buying came rushing back. And according to the same report, predatory buying created an economy that, quote, tilted sharply in favor of bigness. Independent retailers were once a thriving presence in many neighborhoods and towns, but in the 1980s and 1990s, Walmart and other big box chains rose to power in large part by extracting better terms from suppliers. And, quote, Concentration among retailers has, in turn, spurred a massive wave of consolidation in production as large manufacturers, food processors, publishers, and others buy up smaller firms and merge with one another in bid to keep their footing in a market dominated by giants. Basically, and I think we've touched on this before, when one industry starts to consolidate, other connected and adjacent industries have to start consolidating too to be able to maintain their power to be able to push back and fight back. And so this report is saying the same thing. And for me, I'm seeing that in Amherst again. Individual retailers are gone because they're not able to get the same pricing discounts that Walmart, Costco, Loblaws, Sobeys are able to get. And same with manufacturers and producers. They don't have the same number of stores that they can go and sell to or sell through, so they don't have access to the same markets. So whereas if the playing field was level again, there's a chance for local and independent retailers in Amherst to open and have a chance of succeeding and growing. So. One of my favorite phrases that I use quite often in our business is, okay, well, here we are. Now what? A couple things. One, everyone out there listening in small towns or anybody involved in organizing shop local campaigns or anything like that need to keep doing these things because we need to support the independent businesses we have left. At the same time, we need to keep in mind that if we want a fully rebuilt, broad-based retail scene and smaller manufacturing, we need to govern to stop the dominant retailers from bullying small merchants and small manufacturers. Basically, until we stop this bullying and stop this exploitation, we are not going to be able to rebuild our merchant class and we're not going to be able to rebuild our small towns. Stopping that bullying cannot be done through a shop local campaign. Second thing we can do and how we actually go about stopping that bullying is 
Reforming Our Competition Act. There is supposedly a review of the act coming up. Should be anytime soon now, and I really hope the government hasn't lost their nerve on this. We need to do this. But when the review starts, we need to talk to our members of parliament. We need to make submissions. We need to get our local chambers of commerce to make submissions. We need to increase the number of voices that are coming out saying, we need help. We need protection. We need the bullying to stop. And the Competition Act is how we deal with this. And so we need to put pressure on our politicians in our government to change the act, change the laws, and then enforce them. That's how we stop the bullying. That's how we then start building back our merchant class, our downtowns, our neighborhood shops, our small manufacturers, and our small towns and our small communities. We've done this before, and I know we can do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. You can find all of our episodes at the new website, mkht.ca. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter there so you can stay up to date with what's happening and what I'm up to. Take care, everyone. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.